Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you, he said I'm... in a completely natural and unforced way. Um, uh, I'm really excited. I'm really, really excited. But I know you're really excited because I know you're on a mega Beatles fanboy thing I, I, at the moment. I, I, I mean, some, some of us, you know, we're already in the loop. Uh, but um, I, no, I, I am. But, you know, Giles, what Giles has done uh, remixing these uh, the, the, the recent the last three Beatles albums and um, has been extraordinary. And I think as you know, he is the keeper of the flame, isn't he? And uh, he's very much the keeper of the he's And yeah, he's um, he's the man for the job. It's as simple as that. And let's find out about doing that job. Yes. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To get good at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Oh, wow. Charles. God, you look, you look handsome there, John. Yeah, look what bloody hell. You just come from your handsome lesson. <laughs> <laughs> it's not actually me. Yeah. It's someone else. <laughs> and, and I could see Abbey Road is distorting in the background. You're not actually in Abbey Road, are you? No, this is a backdrop. So you can see this is a backdrop. No, I, can, no, I can go. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> oh, yeah, can people see you up? Could you turn up Channel 16, please? Oh, um. yeah, no. <laughs> no, this he, this, this really is Abbey Road, I think. Oh, it is Abbey Road? Yeah, yeah, it's not a backdrop. Yeah, you this is Abbey Road. It's just on the moon Look, now. I, 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 can, I, can, I, can walk, yeah, I can go back over oh, if you like. That's so weird that you're somewhere that like this incredibly glamorous backdrop, but it actually is. It actually it does actually look like a backdrop, doesn't it? Does. it? I'll, it I'll does. picture it and sell it to people. Is that Studio Three? This is Studio Three, yeah. yeah we uh, we mix the um, yeah. Source Full of Secrets. Uh, yeah, you did. I, I saw Nick when you were doing it. Actually, he was very funny about it. Do you, do you know what, what I have to admit? What do you mean he was funny about it? <laughs> but he, no, he was really. I mean, he's so proud of it. He's such a lovely man. He was like. They keep on telling me I'm out of time, is what he said to me. And I said, and I said, I said, I said, no, they don't. And he was, he was just, yeah, he's just humble and self-effacing, isn't he? And lovely. He's so all that. Do you, do you know, I was thinking, I was thinking about this to, the other day because you know people talk about when we play live how it's not like other Pink Floyd shows because you know it's not people dressed in black t-shirts and, and sort of you know looking very very serious about what they're doing. Um, it, and, and and the reason I think our show isn't like, well, including you, mate, when you're when you're playing with David Gilmore. Never wore a black t-shirt. No, no. No, no, no. You stomp around on stage, but you know what I mean. And I think the reason is, is that we're we're all infected by Nick's sense of humour, aren't we? He, he's uh, yeah, he's he's got a great sense of humour, but he does talk about being in Studio Three when the Beatles were in Studio Two, and then they went and 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 the Beatles came in, I think, and had listened. Do you remember this story, Guy? Am I? Yeah, no, they were doing. Um, 
Uh, yeah, Sergeant Pepper was being done when they were doing uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Oh, I see. And it was yeah, literally, it, time, it, it was, and it was the fact that the Beatles were doing Sergeant Pepper. It was go from going in to listen to the Beatles doing Sergeant Pepper that made Rick Wright, who up until that point was basically a jazzer, it was the first time he thought actually maybe this pop music stuff is worth taking seriously. There's a, there's a, you know, the, the obvious Beatles links with, with Pink Floyd and uh, uh, Norman Hurricane Smith. Of course, yeah. Have, who was the original Beatles engineer, who was, a, I mean, a fantastic engineer, was responsible for the sound of those early albums. And uh, he signed and produced Pink Floyd. He was the person that discovered Pink Floyd. And my, and my dad then fired him on the grounds that he'd become a, he'd gone upstairs, he'd become a producer. It's like, you, you know, you can't have two producers in a room, you know, you can't have right. two people doing this. And so that's why Jeff Emmerich was brought in, because Norman Smith discovered Pink Floyd. Wow! I love these connections. I love this. Yeah, connections, yeah. So he's, uh, yeah, and uh, and the funny thing is, I mean, Norman Smith was a lovely man, but if you've ever met him... He played drums him, I mean, on a Floyd song, didn't he? Well, no, there was, a, there, there was a great disputed thing that there's one track that he played drums on. It's one of those, I don't know. But the, the, the yeah. least likely hurricane you could imagine, really. I don't know why it was called Norman <laughs> Hurricane Smith. Giles, I, I remember being in Abbey Road when Nick was there a few years ago when we'd been mixing and, and hearing you were there. And I was drawn down to that little studio cupboard room that you, you guys, I think you and your, your main man, is it Sam? Yeah. We're in. And I, and I was sort of, I was hovering like a stage door Johnny just outside the window, hoping you would recognise me and invite me in. Because you I can't tell you how excited I am about what you were doing at that point. I'm still what you're doing with the Beatles. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, when I'm literally next to the toilets, if anyone wants to know, that's where that's where I am. Actually, the funny story, when I, when I, I was nothing to do, I had nothing to do with Beatles stuff at all until The Love Project. And I sort of auditioned for it and came up with some ideas. And I said, listen, I need a, I really need a room to work in. And they kicked this marvellous man called Lester Smith, who's the guy who looks after all the microphones, um, out of his room and gave me that room. And I had a dog, a big white dog at the time called, called Stanley. Stanley. That's what I was going to ask. I used, yes. I, used to, I used to bum into a guy with Stanley. And, and Stanley, unfortunately, did a, did a massive dump on the studio floor. <laughs> Just so I moved in, which I, which I cleared up. And then my, my, my dad would come in once a week on a Thursday to hear what I was doing. And, uh, and there was this terrible smell happening in the studio. I felt so bad about it because I thought it was Stan. But it, what, what it was, in my room had the air conditioning feed from the gentleman's bog feeding into my room. And it was nothing to do with Stan at all. It, just, it, got, it can't smell this bad after a year. So whenever <laughs> anyone had a heavy movement next door, it would appear in my studio. Well, if, so if it's not that Smith glamorous. had been in... <laughs> Yeah, Aaron Smith. God knows what would have happened. I, I like I like this that you describe this chap Lester as the keeper of the microphones. He is. He is. He's the keeper of the microphones. It's you know there's a, it's a you know I'm talking to you through a, a Norman Forty Seven, which I think they stopped building them in 1965 or something like that. And uh, and he has to find the bits to make them work, and they're as they're as good as new. But but you're but right because good... Abbey Road is kind of now it's basically the, like the Tower of London, with with more deaths. Yeah. yeah. But the, and, and uh, when the ravens leave, then we're stuffed. The, the well, I, see, I guess yeah, the, I they've guess never the, recorded here. I guess in many ways the ravens are the Beatles tapes that are in there, isn't it? I think what you should do for a second though is for a few minutes even is is explain why Abbey Road is so special and is so historic. I mean, it's got to be the most famous studio in the world. I think it is. I mean, there are other places, you know, in America, whatever the Capitol, and you know, you know, Muscle Shoals and. 
I think what makes studios is the people and the musicians that come in here. And I think studios are a bit like, um, a bit like teapots. You know, you should never really rinse them out properly. <laughs> because, because, you know, because music's in the walls of the building. And, you know, as a producer, as anyone who loves studios, what you want really is you want, you know, you want to get someone to studios and perform the best they ever have done. Lastly, what is someone to go do a vocal and then go back and go back home and sing in the shower and it's better. And I think that places like great studios should be championed because there's an expectancy when you walk through the doors that this is your job, this is your role. I mean, we're all complete chances as musicians, really. You know, we're just, we're just. I don't know about anyone. But I'm consistently surprised that you know, I'm employed by anyone, really. <laughs> And, we're we're and, surprised you're employed by anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well you know, thank you for the reassurance. I'm now a broken man speaking to a, speaking through a broken microphone. Um, yeah, and I think I think that's what it is. I think the I think you know Abbey Road. See, Abbey Road was the first studios ever built. Before before Abbey Road was built, there was no studios. There was recording going on, but it was record people recording in in theatres and you know reviews or whatever. And they built Studio One. They actually built a stage and somewhere for people to sit because that's the way you recorded when they first started recording. And I do know the first thing um, that was said there, the first recording there, which was Elgar, wasn't it? Yeah, my headphones aren't loud enough. Elgar. Oh, no. <laughs> no, apparently, what was it? I can't remember what they were doing, but it, it was uh, Elgar stood up in front said? of the orchestra and said, it's a light programme today, gentlemen. Play it as if you've never heard it before. And that was the utterance oh. for the first ever recording at Abbey Road. Yeah, you can and, have that one. Uh, and, that's it. I, 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 can we edit? So I said that. Um, yeah, and and it's just a, it's just the fact that then then obviously it was built so so a record label could 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 make music like re research and development, if you like. It's like a company that invests in art so it can you know so it can monetize. Let's face it, that's what it is. And I think in a way we've lost that in a way when studios became commercialized to a certain degree. They, you know, it became a different story, and I think the the ones that have that story are different. So I think, I think the reason why Sergeant Pepper was made here, and the reason why Dark Side of the Moon was made here, is because it's kind of drab in a way. It's it's a bit like um, the BBC making you know great drama shows. Yeah. You know, you yeah. paint you paint the walls with sound, you you fill in the blanks. You have this, you know, slightly util utilitarian space. That then you create great music in to fill the walls. And I think that's part of the story. And I think that's what makes it great. I think you're absolutely right. Because David's always said, because also because the interesting things you were saying about places like Muscle Shoals, I suppose Capital is the only other place. Because the thing with studios tend to be associated with a period of music, you know, whereas Abbey yeah. Road and I would say Capital are the only ones that aren't. The thing is that, that, that Abbey Road is music. It's all, it's all the way back and all the way to now. But you're right, and I think part of it is that whole BBC white coats, the fact there was a canteen. Very, you know, there still is, right? Yeah. yeah. And the food was still I remember that... David Gilmore saying that, that, uh, to me that, you know, Dark Side of the Moon was basically made on these terrible pies that they have one of the first microwaves. <laughs> and that was their treat, was some dreadful meat pie. <laughs> they, they killed three people during the heating yeah, up of a pie. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's it's you know like the you know the Beatles had to famously break into the fridge so they could get milk. Paul still has the lights that they were given. You know they 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 wanted it a bit more colourful. So EMI provided them with three fluorescent lights. I think you know you know red, green, and blue, or red, green, and yellow. And he still has he has them in his studios down in down in Rye. Right. You know, that was their effort in order to give it a vibe. Psychedelic. There's three, yeah, three <laughs> person I, strip lights. But I think there's but, something to 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 value about uh, the fact that it it wasn't built 
during the rock and roll period. It wasn't built just to make rock music in. That when you go down to that canteen, the photographs on the walls goes back into the history of British light entertainment. You know, there's Charlie Drake. You know, the, the, yeah. the, the comedy records that your dad would have made, mm -hmm. you know, were just as important to the Beatles, I think, as, as, as the rock and roll records coming from America. Because, you know, the goons have inspired and, and the, the comedy that is in within the Beatles. There wasn't an album without a comedy track on it. But I think what it did is it, it for a band like the Beatles, it said, this is your heritage. You're part of this. You're, you know, you are entertaining. You know, that, that's, well, that's in the building, yeah, is it? Yeah, and I think it's to the performance space as well. I mean, you know, don't forget when the Beatles came in to start recording, they weren't allowed in through the front door. Um, they came, they <laughs> came in around, the, they came in around the side. The tradesmen's. They went, tradesmen. yeah, they, yeah, they went through the tradesmen's, and they came into the, onto the studio floor. And Studio Two for you know, for listeners is on two different floors. The control rooms upstairs, and the, and the live areas downstairs. They went down to the live area, and you're only allowed to listen if you were invited up to the room. You know, you set up your gear and you played, and then, and then, you know. You got you got invited up to listen, and that's the way it worked. And it, it's a travesty that things have changed now. To it's be true. With well, you. you're right because the control room was 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 a hellhole, wasn't it? I mean, everything was about the studio. It was about the studio space, right? And it absolutely, was, yeah. and it was kind of the, the, and like the engineers were basically like the sort of boilermen on a on a ship or something, sort of <laughs> tracked yeah, away with the yeah, you know with with, yeah, with the was, equipment. There, there was no point having a big control room. I mean, look, if I actually take my camera off. No, because that was the desk over there. There is the that wow. tiny that's, desk. That's the size of the desk that was made on. It looks like the sort of thing John Pertwee would fly the TARDIS with. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's you know, in some ways, and this has been mentioned before on your on your brilliant podcast. But you know, risk constraints are sometimes a great form of art. You know, you battle against the walls you're in. You create sounds because they're not available. And, oh, yeah, that's the and, key. So that's the key, isn't it? We're all we're all victims and, of overchoice now. The fact that you never have to commit to anything. They thought about what the record they were going to make before they made it, and then they went and made it. They painted the picture that they already had. I'm I'm interested to know what you thought your dad did for a living. When what's your earliest memory? <laughs> you know, my dad was a printer. He went off to a factory. He put a tie on in the morning to go to the factory. Did did you? Think your dad was a, a musician? Well, it's, it's a, when I was when I was at playgroup, um, I went to playgroup in in near Paddington. They they went round the the sort of four year olds, five year olds, and asked what their dad did for a living. Um, and I just said, my dad sits home sits at home and plays the piano. Um, and I think <laughs> that's he was what my doing, kids say about me. <laughs> yeah, and I think he was doing. I think he was doing Live and Let Die. I think he was writing the music for Live and Let Die at the time. That would have been that era. So I didn't really know, but I grew up in, you know, studios were always, were always, you know, he had, my dad had two places. He had the office, he was part of Chrysalis, um, and they're in Stratford Place off Bond Street. And then he had the studios, and that was at the fourth, fourth, fourth floor of um, 204 Oxford Street, where Nike Town is now. And I would go there, and that's where I'd like to go, because that was more fun. That was where the fun people were, and they had a hot chocolate machine. You know, that was, that was it. So I knew that um, I didn't really... The, the interesting thing is also growing up, um, my dad wasn't successful growing up when I was growing up. The Beatles became much more successful after I grew up than they were when I was growing up. There was a rejection of the past. Well, ah, I mean, they, they, weren't, they, weren't, yeah. they weren't cool. I remember, I remember my dad... Um, you know, struggling to get work, struggling to find work and finding people to record because he'd done the Beatles, you know, and he had some, you know, he he did, I mean, he produced now with a band called UFO, I remember. Oh, God, that's um, right, yeah. And uh, 
and he always told the sort of the, the bass player I'm sure he's a wonderful man and what great bass player goes I've got a song for you George and he got his rack of of gear and just played bass to him for about four, four minutes Way. or so Pete Way goes, his name was wasn't he? and said so what do you think and my dad goes well, it's not really a song isn't it this is I mean my dad was a bit was a bit cruel I remember I when I you know got into music and which my, my parents thought was a terrible idea. Uh, they're probably right looking back on it. But um, he said to me, I wrote a song. I was about 14. It wasn't that bad. And he went, it's not really Strawberry Fields, is it? Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Well, I, his benchmark was high. Yeah, I worked with him once. Uh, you well, were there, I was there, you were there guy. Giles. That's I was right. there, yeah. That might be where we what have was the Tio Massaro. No, it was George Gershwin. It was George Gershwin, but it was George Gershwin's songs. But it, but the album was all about um, uh, no, two steel Larry men, Adler, the, um, the, the harmonica no, player. La, la, no, Larry, Larry Adler. That's what I said, Larry Adler. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, pay attention, Bond. Yes. <laughs> it was, Try to keep up, it, it was, seven. <laughs> it, was, it, it was a long time ago. No, I remember. It was, you played, you played um, Robert Palmer. It was Robert, it was Palmer. Robert Palmer. It was track. I've Got Rhythm. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it and was. Robert did a classic Robert thing where he wanted me to play all offbeats. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It was all offbeats. Oh, and, and he'd done a... Uh, 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 yeah, uh, that's uh, right. Uh, and he'd, <laughs> and he'd, 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 done, he'd done a MIDI, he'd done a MIDI arrangement. And the string arranger, there was a guy called Graham Prescott, and Graham was a bit of a drinker, and uh, and Robert liked to tipple. You think? And after you left, and I was, and my my dad just would leave, and I I was I don't know twenty three, something, and I it was like it was then I had to go and finish it off. And I remember the whole studio just went into this sort of, and I was too young, I didn't know how to deal with it all. I said, listen, can we just get going? And Robert said to me, he goes, are you on drugs? And I went, no. And he goes, perhaps you should be. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, why important about four years I bumped into Robert at a gig and I said I said and he was he was really nice. I said, You said to me, he goes, oh, I'm sorry, I was just a bit pissed. He said to me, he goes he goes, You were great. You were, he was really he was lovely. Yeah, no, he was he really lovely. lovely. But he also had a thing I about felt... he used to like to try and say the most inappropriate thing to people. He did a few... Yeah, I was but so nervous. Remember, but the thing I remember at that session more than anything, apart from just like desperate hanging on for dear life, trying to keep up with this song, um, was at the start of it was that your dad on the talk back just went all right, stand by your beds. And I just thought, oh, my God, that is the most George Martin thing I've ever heard in my life. This is amazing. That is clearly George Martin. <laughs> listen, I, listen, I, Giles, I, um, I met your dad a few times. I, I actually had a, a, a lovely slice of cake up in the Cotswolds in, in their house up there. Oh, 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 brilliant, yeah. And I used to sing carols standing next to him because uh, I, I my house was nearby. One, And I have to say, one of the most beautiful human beings I've ever met. Uh, yeah, he's a lovely man. But you were brought in because he was starting to go deaf. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, he he started going deaf in the eighties, um, and he, he, you know, he he was he was listening to a tape machine being lined up, and suddenly realised he couldn't hear anything above ten kilohertz. You know, on the on the on the you know on the tone reel. I was. You know, by no means a musical genius, but I was probably more musical than my mates at school. I was probably better at playing instruments than my mates at school, by no means great. And I loved it. I, I love music. I love the whole process. I love artists. I love the whole thing. And, and, and he just said, listen, I need to hide my deafness from people. I need to, you need to come to the studios with me because I, I, don't, I don't want people to know I'm deaf. Wow. So I'd, I'd be like a, a guide dog and he'd tell me what he was doing. He'd tell me, and I'd be fully aware of what frequencies he couldn't hear. We'd go through on a piano. We'd go through what notes he couldn't hear on a piano. 
and so I'd learn the pitch of what he was missing out on, and and we'd 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 map out his hearing almost on a regular basis. So I would know, you know, <laughs> you know, cymbals, violins, and it would go down. Eventually, he couldn't hear anything above a middle C. Wow. Um, and and that's the way we that's the way we worked, and and it was it was difficult because I was there because he needed to be there, but obviously no one really wants. You know, they want George Martin. They don't want his son hanging around. I mean, it was, it was, he was lovely, and but it was that thing where, and it's funny. There's only I remember only at the time at that period of time, which was sort of um, early '90s. I remember Pete Townsend, who also, you know, has hearing issues. Mm. Yeah, he actually in his book he wrote. You know, you know, he was. We did a we did a project at Pete Townsend. He was fully aware of what my role was. He was the only one that was fully aware. What album was? Oh, it was it. It was it was it was a Tommy. It was it was a it was. He was doing Tommy the Musical, and we went out and. um, Oh, that's right, George. That's produced by. Yeah, we we went and we went and did it, and uh, you know, it was it was. was, As I say, it wasn't a great record. It won it won the Grammy, and it was actually one of those things with the injustice of Grammy Awards. It really wasn't a very very good recording. (laughs) I've got to be honest, having done it. But anyway, it was a very good new song on it, though. I remember. Thinking that was a Pete wrote a new song for yeah. school, didn't he? Yeah. It's not on he the was record, he, he was brilliant, Pete actually, and he still is. I still see him, and he's just you know you you spend time in a room with him, and you're and you're always replenished afterwards. You're always challenged yeah. and replenished. He's one of those people. Yeah. I, I yeah, just yeah, get yeah. a good look at my shoes every time I'm in a room with Pete. Frankly, yeah, I go <laughs> to pieces. I can tell you everything about every pair of shoes I've been wearing whenever I've met Pete Townsend. <laughs> <laughs> my dad was my dad produced Ultravox. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. From image, yeah. In Montserrat, and uh, and and I mean I, the, the great thing I the great thing I had growing up is I spent all all this time all these you know these bands that were a great laugh and a great period of time for music, and uh, we were in Montserrat, and Chris the bass player came out of the studios and said to my dad, as my dad was walking into the control room, said, "How's it going, George? Is it going well in there?" My dad held up his held up his plate and said two boiled eggs and went straight into the control room. <laughs> and that's when, as a, as a band member, you think maybe your producer's hearing's not as good as it should be. And 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 and, 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 and uh, he's a genius. <laughs> but the funny thing is, I did a I did a talk the other day with Andrew Sheps, who's a great engineer, brilliant engineer, and we did a talk the other day about about hearing and um, and how people. You know, they were talking about, about young engineers coming through and people are worried about their hearing or worried they haven't got great hearing. And what I say to musicians that are worried about that is like, make music and see if it's any good, you know, because you do adapt. And my dad did adapt. I mean, there was, there was he, had, he had limitations and found things difficult, but he, he, could really, he could really adapt to that. And he was a great arranger too, and that was the amazing arranger. Yeah. yeah, he was. He was an amazing. He was an amazing. He was. A, he was an amazing arranger. In the fact that he had his, his his arrangements had excitement and humanity in them. They weren't. He wasn't ticking any boxes. Um, and it's that old school thing about you know he didn't use computers. He did. He did like computers and and actually eventually put put all of his scores into Sibelius by hand. It took him ages. Wow. But he never. But he always wrote on paper and never. Had any idea what his arrangement was? Well, he did actually he had a pretty good idea, but you wouldn't be able to hear his arrangement before it was played. But with the Beatles, I mean, his fantastic thing was was that um, he had the technical ability to kind of bring what their ideas to life. In that kind, like when you know, when Paul would say, "I don't know, I like something like the Brandenburg Concerto," or whatever, and he'd go, "Yes," and he could write that. So, so yeah. there's there a whole kind of dimension of of their imagination, which they wouldn't have been able to bring to fruition themselves, you know, technically. Well, but- well, what was interesting? The Beatles were such a closed, closed circuit in in a, in a very good way. What was interesting about my dad and arranging is that he he didn't arrange. Everyone thinks he didn't arrange for the comedy records. So he didn't really arrange for records until he did yesterday. 
You know, he wow. had he had Ron Goodwin. Um, a bunch of other guys would do the comedy stuff. They would do the string arrangements for him. So he wasn't um, an engineer. What was he doing? Was he v- keep getting the vibe? <laughs> People didn't have vibes. Well, in those he, days, for, for, st- for a start, he for a start. Don't forget, he was the he was the head of Parlophone and an A and R yeah. guy. He he got given the role of being head of Parlophone. He there was there was not really much pop music. Then Cliff Richard came along, and he was doing comedy records because. Because they were successful, and you know, he he did Beyond the Fringe, he did Florence and Swan, he did The Goons, he then did you know, um, Peter Ustinov was his first big single, if you like. Wow! And then wow. and then and then you know, it was just purely happenstance. Famously, you know, Brian Epstein had seen everyone else, and eventually went to go and see the comedy guy. And then the process to ask the question as a producer, he was, I think, the producer and. The engineer was a separate field. It's only it only changed afterwards, and he, you know, his knowledge about compression limits, limitation, EQ, all that sort of stuff, would never touch the desk really, but would be like a film director, and the right. and the engineer would be the lighting cameraman. That's the way the role would happen in those days. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, it used to be with um, like with when bands first went went in, because because there were producers like Phil Spector, Joe Meek, whatever. But production as a thing, when when bands started, it, it, it was usually the manager was assigned to be the producer. You know, yeah. Andrew Oldham was was produced the first Rollings, and he had no idea what he was doing. You know, they said, "Oh, hang on, well, I've got to mix it," and he went, "Oh, what's that?" And say so, in the same <laughs> as so, Kit Lambert was automatically producing the Who, and it's kind of like, why? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, he, that's the you know the, his his role was to. To be a guide for them, I think his role—it's a bit like a—he was like a satellite dish that all this information would hit him, and he'd have to come out of one screen or a funnel where all these ideas would be poured onto a bit of vinyl. But what's extraordinary about him is he was avant-garde because what he—you know—this this rather straight-looking guy ended up doing some of the most adventurous music yeah. that's ever been made in pop music. But he's but. It was a. He was. He was. It was a front. You know, his 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 um his whole vo- his his voice. He he gave himself a voice. He wasn't. He didn't speak like that when he growing up. He was. He was. From, right. He was from. He was from the Balls Pond Road. My grandfather, who I'd never met, apparently was a lovely man. He sold the Evening Stand on the streets. Um, he trained as a carpenter, had no money, and ended up being a newspaper street salesman. There's a very beautiful, beautifully sad story. Is when my dad started making money, <coughs> which wasn't really until just post Beatles. Um, his dad, who was quite a bit old, you know, was 85 when he died in 1965, so he was born in 1880 or whatever it was. He would come visit my dad and take the bus on the Ballspawn Road. My dad would give him money for the bus home and give him some money. And, uh, and when, when his dad died, he left him a book, and in the book was all the money my dad had given him saying, I couldn't leave you anything, son, so I've given you the money back. Um, and um, so my dad's roots were very, they weren't rough. He came from a, you know, a loving family, but he was always pushing stuff. He wasn't, it wasn't, you know, he wanted to be seen as, you know, it, it helped him to be, you know, I'm George Martin, come to the studios, all that sort of, sort of thing. Not that it was a front, because he, he thought that that's how people should behave. People should Brilliant. be gentlemen. It was aspirational. Um, at the same time, there was an edge to him that didn't come across when you spoke to him. There was definitely a... He got bored easily. It's, here's a story, actually, which, is, which shows you what he was like, and people don't really realise. I, I It was probably that time, Guy, when we were working together. We had a, a string session up at Air, and he had a flat and day. And My dad would always have breakfast in bed. My mum and dad would always have breakfast in bed, and he was lying in bed. And I think the session was at, probably started at 10. So I drove to pick him up, and I arrived there. It was about... I don't know, I'm never that early, probably about quarter past nine. 
And he's lying in bed with his breakfast. He's watching, watching breakfast television. I was doing I the said, Times do crossword. <laughs> yeah, doing the Times crossword. I said, Jim, what are you doing? He goes, I'm having my breakfast. I said, we've got an orchestral session starting at 10. He goes, mm, yep. Here's the thing, Giles. When you get to my age, sometimes you wake up in the morning and you think, fuck them. <laughs> George Martin, oh, wow. And so, and so, you know, that's, the, and that's, and he had this brilliant dark sense of humour, you know, even up until his, you know, I, it, we, we were, st we were, in, in, in a funny way, but our relationship was a bit like Benjamin Button. He wasn't that around much as a kid. Let's face it; we all know we've been guilty as, as musicians, people in the studios. We're not, we're not very good at nine to fives, you know. With, but we try our best. So he wasn't around that much. Um, he was good on weekends and stuff like that. Uh, but we spent a lot. We spent way more time together than most fathers and sons do when his when his deafness happened, and then later on, and when, you know, he always said, "I, I, Giles is my ears." He used to say, and up until his death, we, you know, we were, we had the most beautiful times together, really, really lovely times where he would just, you know, I used to, you know, he 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 was he was ill for a long time, or you know, relatively long time because he was old, and I used to walk in the morning, and go, "You still here then?" He go, oh, "Piss off, Giles." You know, you're still you're still alive. You're still alive then, are you today? Yeah. And um, I could ask him things that I remember. I remember asking him. I was doing. I was working. I do. I do a few bit, few bits of film stuff now. And I was working on a Kingsman film. And there was a scene I was having to do, and it was quite complex. And I was under pressure. And I said, "Dad, do you ever think you're bad at music?" And he sort of closed his eyes. And he goes, "That's a that's a strange question to ask me." And he goes, no, because I get asked to do these things. And I think, how am I going to get this done? I don't know what to do. I mean, he goes, and, he, and he's like, um, no, no, I always thought I was brilliant. And I thought, you bastard. You know, because that wave, and that's what the Beatles had, that wave, that surfing on a wave of, and that's what great music is like. And that's what, you know, the privileged times when, you know, I've done some good stuff. It's a bit like catching a great wave. Yeah. You know you're on, you know you're on something, and that's what happened with him and the Beatles as they caught a wave and they didn't get off it. Wow, they didn't confidence. Fall off. We, we were talking to Stevie Van Zandt about this because he was saying because the Beatles were the first band who introduced this idea of of, of evolving, because basically bands turned up, they had a thing, and that was what they did. But it's something that's always always been in my mind, always struck me is that like when George when he signed the Beatles, right? There was this band doing Twist and Shout. That you would have any idea that yesterday across the universe, Sergeant Pepper, that that stuff was actually in there waiting to come out from these three chord, you know, rock and roll band. Well, that's the beauty of it because you know he didn't he didn't really even think they were very good, um, but he just liked them. You know, he liked them as people, and that's the key thing about it. we all know this about you know, that's what you get out of life is you is you want to spend time with people you love, and if you can create great stuff, that's mm -hmm. great. But probably better is spending time with people you love. The rest of it comes and goes. And in the case of the Beatles, they genuinely all loved each other. I think there was an element of competition as well. Incredible no, uh, th but musical competition that kept on pushing them into other yeah, higher yeah, places. Yeah, absolutely. But that's not that's not that's a separate thing in a way. Do you know what I mean? So he so he 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 liked being in a room with them. So he wanted to be in a room with them. He had no idea, neither did they, that they were going to go and create this amazing mm -hmm. music yeah. and that he would be able to be the person that you can look at in the studios and know whether you've done good or not. And that's what my dad had, is that he had, he had this, you know, Paul always says, you know, he had a good bed, bedside manner. But I think it's more than that. I think it's, 
it doesn't matter if it's Jeff Beck or Ella Fitzgerald or the Beatles or whoever it was, or, or you playing bass guy, you wanted to perform for him. You yeah, wanted yeah, to absolutely. impress him. Absolutely. You wanted to, do, and, that, and that's part of making great records. That's part of the yeah. thing. That's just, a, and that's just something he had. He didn't train mm-hmm. to do. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. But on, on Guy's point, and I think one of the reasons we, we know the sort of history of why it happened, you know, the Beatles give up playing live because they can't hear themselves because PAs aren't very good. Well, there aren't they, PAs. <laughs> there aren't <laughs> even PAs. And they've done their 50,000 hours in Hamburg and all the, you know, they've played those sort of songs to death. And they're, they're, they are now given the medium of the studio to, as the only place to express themselves in. And I think like all artists, you the medium is what drives your creativity. And I guess as Abbey Road started to expand and possibilities in music started to become more extreme, if you like, um, varying. And then I think they pushed the envelope all the time. And when you went in to hear those tapes, those early tapes, um, and I kind of want you to tell me a bit about what their storage is like, because I'm concerned. I, I, someone, exactly, I just want to know what, what they look like. What, they, <laughs> what are the boxes? Sorry, there's a bunch of questions yeah, in no, there. Exactly. There's a bunch of ideas. Off you go. Um, well, okay, well, if I'm not allowed to talk about their storage because it's secret, but they're safe. Right, um, right. It's a bit like Indiana Jones and the Reds of the Lost Ark, isn't it? <laughs> they're... they're, they're they're, they're, they're safe and they're in, they're in good hands. So we don't, we don't have to worry. Can we, we don't have to lose any sleep about where the Beatles tapes are. Then. So that's so, all right. So, so they are the Ravens. <laughs> they are the Ravens. So so the so the the um, the majority of the master tracks are on one inch four track tape, which is actually incredibly good quality. You know, we, you know, you guys have been used to recording on on two inch twenty four track, mm-hmm. and if you just think about how many how much real estate you get. On that compared to a one-inch four-track tape, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's so, why you could bounce so much easier, isn't it? Right. Yeah. So the and so the quality. And my first experience of a Beatles tape was um, I was brought to my dad to work on Anthology Two, the Beatles Anthology Two, and I heard the four-track of Dan Life on a tape machine, and I honestly thought that John was through the glass. It didn't sound old in any way. Wow. It was it's it is extraordinary, and so I get a lot of credit for putting pushing faders up and doing these albums. And people go, "Oh my God, it sounds so clear." And you go, "Well, it does anyway." But I think the thing about about that actually just to go side to the thing about that and music is a recording or a record is that it's a it's someone frozen in time. You know, Paul will be always be twenty four or twenty five, whatever it was when he sang yesterday, and he is that now when you listen to it. Mm-hmm. And so w- when I approach doing, you know, mixing Sergeant Pepper's or White Album or Let It Be or Abbey Road or whatever it is, I just think, okay, 
I'm working with a 24 year old band, 25 year old band. I'm not working with old musicians because if they're not, yeah. they are here now. This yeah. is them. Wow caught in time it's really it's really important and therefore when kids listen to it i don't want to think it's old i want to think this is now because it it is if you think about it and they all got transferred on to hard drives early on yeah so and so i was asked to do well i wasn't asked to i i suggest there's a there's a show called love in vegas and now and that ca that came about from Cirque du soleil yeah they came back yeah. from the deal, deal with Cirque du soleil and i sat with neil aspinall and i said i think i can make Cirque du soleil had a bunch of Montreal DJs remixing Beatles music and the Beatles rejected it um, my dad was ill at the time he was actually in hospital and they I just had some success doing something and they said you know they brought me in I said listen I can I reckon I can well I said this I have no idea I reckon I can create a show the Beatles never played by just chopping up their tapes and he goes all right you've got three months and we're not paying you and and I, I honestly believe that the idea of George Martin's son chopping up the Beatles tapes to create a show in Vegas was such a disgusting idea <coughs> that, that, that I might as well back the tapes up because I'm going to get fired anyway. I mean, obviously, obviously this isn't going to happen. So I started, we started backing up all the tapes because they hadn't been back. They'd been back up, backed up on Mitsubishi digital tape machines, which are the, the, okay. the worst tape machines in the world. Right. They sound terrible. So we started doing that on, on Pro Tools at the time. Um, and we've recently backed them up much better, so they're not used too much. But what we do, the process we do, so for instance, if there's a four track and it's been bounced, we'll manually sync the four tracks together with very speed. Um, so I get, so right. if I'm mixing Sgt. Peppers, I can create, like I think Lovely Rita is three, four track bounces. I can go back and create not 12 tracks because there's bounces, but say eight tracks of audio, which they never had. So, so they're backed up in a way that is, yeah. is workable. Is it, I mean, yeah. are we at the stage yet, do you think technically, where, or I'm sure we would be soon, where you can actually separate out bounce tracks? Well, I've just been looking at that now, actually, and I've been looking at it for a long time. I did that with, I worked on a Ron Howard film called... Um, Sorry, we just need to explain that a little bit to people who maybe aren't too clear on this. So when, when you, if you record onto four tracks and then you'll bounce those, you'll re-record those onto one track. I'm just, you know, there are people listening who have The best way to explain that, if you have a band, you have guitars, bass, drums and piano and you have a four track tape machine and you want each band to be on a different fader on the desk so you can control them, you, you, you've used up all of your tape machine, you can't go any further. So what you do is you make a mix of that using the faders and you put those on one track. So your next tape is a four track and it has guitar, bass, drums and piano on one track and you have three more tracks available and you can fill that up and you can bounce again. That's the way the Beatles worked. The downside of that, of that is that every time you bounce, you get some degradation in the same way that, I mean, people won't know this now because they're not as old as we are, but you know, because it's like a cassette to cassette, if you like. Yeah. But you're you're going back to the original recordings for for to, for every drum part. You go back to that very first recording of yeah. Ringo's kit, etc. Correct. And there's not many Beatles. There's not many Beatles tracks with drums on one track anyway. The, the funny thing about the Beatles is even when they got four track in, which is you know one and a half albums in, they didn't use all the four tracks up. They quite often just record all the band on on one track because that's what they did and vocals two sets of vocals another track you know that would be it you know it's like okay so why don't you put the drums on a different track because there was there's no point because that was the and we got to understand this the whole idea of mixing was something that you just had to do because you had a multi-track tape machine the ethos of the engineers is your it was a good that got in the way of making the record because the record you're making it live in the studios you know yeah. when my when my dad first started at abbey road the way things recorded is direct to disc and the way wow. the disc was powered, 
So you just have someone engraving a disc live. You'd have a weight dropping down from the ceiling. So there was electricity wasn't wasn't you know reliable enough. So the most reliable source of energy is gravity. You lift the weight up. The conductor would be in the studios. He the green light would go on. The weight would drop. The disc would spin. The engraving would happen, and the, the and his job. At, at, at Abbey Road was to make sure that the scores and the music was right so the, the players stopped before it got to the hole. Oh. And then the engineer's ability was was actually, you know, we can, they'd be able to look at the disc and see whether it was a good recording because you can't play a disc back. You'd then go and have that stamped and a couple of days later you'd get your recording back. What tape changed? In fact, director disc, even when tape machines came in, people were still using director disc because it was better quality than tape. Tape was... Was, wasn't very good to begin with. But I'm sure I knew about, some people doing it in the 70s. There were still correct. some people using direct-to-disc. And, and, then, and then what tape what tape changed, you could hear yourself immediately. It's a bit like the dawn of digital photography. That changed things. As soon as you can, as soon as you can hear yourself in the studio, you may play differently or perform differently or whatever, in the same way that you take a different photograph once you can see it immediately. And so, and so the engineers that work on the Beatles, they, were, they worked, they've been trained in that way. So the idea of just recording a band live, and that's the record, that was the idea. Yeah. It wasn't until later that the, the mixing happened. I'm a born-again Beatles fan. And it's really because of you, Giles, that that's the case. So you were talking about your dad not being very fashionable in the 70s. And, and that's right. I bought my first record in 1971. I never bought a Beatles record. I bought Wings, I bought John Lennon, and I bought George Harrison's song records because they were coming out there and then. Yeah. I didn't think of buying records from my past. Mm -hmm. And the Beatles were kind of there. They were there as... They were there like... The Bible was there, like Father Christmas was there. It was just part of culture. They were just there. What really made me think again about the whole thing was, was your first remix of, of Sgt. Pepper's. Because I remember putting that on and the, everyone was so apparent. They were so clear. And they were, they, it was, as you said, like it was recorded today. George's guitar was so crisp and beautiful. There was bottom end in the track. And I have just fallen in love with this band to such an extreme it's it's just another passion in my life again and it's really for what you were doing i want to ask one question about that because obviously the album that you released on 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 sergeant peppers for sergeant peppers your remix was and with all the beautiful stuff we can talk about about the the you know them talking to each other in the background and and your dad talking but it's in stereo and 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 we all sort of know that the Beatles didn't care about stereo on that album. That they spent six weeks mixing the mono mix, and then and then the stereo was just done in a day. Did you ever think, should I be doing this in mono? No, because the whole the whole point of the whole point of what I try and do um, is 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 I think you know get. You know, get people, get kids if they listen to the Beatles. It's not about us. It's about new generations. They just think this is a great band. Mm -hmm. That's the that's that's what I try and try and get done here. I actually listen to the mono. I match the mono. The mono is the, my reference for the mix. If that makes sense. There's lots of things in the mono that aren't in the stereo. And so I made a stereo version of the mono. If that makes sense, because I didn't know that's what the Beatles would want. And it's a, actually a very poignant story with with Sergeant Bill because I they, I was asked to do. I'd done lots of different Beatles projects before, films and stuff like that, but this is the first album remix. And I was like, my, I'm the first person to go, why would you remix Sgt. Pepper's? I mean, it's hardly a bad-sounding record, is it? And they and we talked about it, and I said, well, listen, give me... You know, 
You give me, give me, give me some time. I'll go and mix some tracks, and then it's all very. I tell you what, the other thing about the Beatles, it's all very. Um, there's not, there's not many of us involved. There's no sort of, you know, playback for people. There's no approvals process or anything like that. I'll phone them up and say, okay. And then I did three or so, and and I actually thought this is actually really interesting because there's something here. So I phoned up and I said, you know, I think we should, we we can do it. We should do it. Um, but the first thing, my dad had just died. And the, I went, I went, it was about two weeks later, and I went in, and the first voice I heard was his. I pressed play on the tape machine, the first voice I heard was his. Wow. Um, you know, and so, and you just think, well, uh, and, I, you know, I have, I have issues with this because, I, you know, it's that, you know, nepotism rules. And you do think, why the hell am I doing this? You know, it's a bit weird, isn't it? And I remember saying years ago to a friend of mine, a uh, producer friend of mine, said, you know, should I be doing this? He goes, well, if you don't, if you don't do it, I'll do it, you know. <laughs> And you just mm. and so there's this weight of responsibility upon yourself. At the same time, there's a strange freedom as well, and and you just try and and I'm so listen. It's Gary, the, you saying that is the reason why I do it. It's the reason why I do it because music. It doesn't matter the Beatles. Music should be listened to. And one of the things that this this happens, you know, you do a, even if you do a mix that people don't like, people go and listen to it, and they go, oh, where music's on all the time right now, and it's like it's not it's not taken and cherished in that way. But it, I think there's, you know, there's nepotism and there's co continuity. And I, I think, you know, a lot of us feel much more comfortable it being yep. in your hands, frankly, you know. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a little, little bit of how slapdash I am. No. It's a funny thing. You, you ask about the go, go back to the tapes. Um, you know, I have the same feeling as you guys do. It's not as though, you know, I was I was I was given a tape box as a four year old. Um, I had nothing to do with this world at all. And then. I remember actually going back to when I was locked in a room doing love. I remember one of the things I was doing, I was putting tablets from within you without you on Here Comes the Sun and doing all this kind of stuff. And they brought me the tape box of Here Comes the Sun. And you're like going, this is the tape of Here Comes the Sun. I always remember, I was like, this is it. And then after about three weeks of going, Where's that box gone? You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> oh dear! Stan has done a dump in it. <laughs> yeah, oh, not again. What is interesting is the writing process and the the when in what you've revealed to us are the the demos or the first takes or the you know mm. of of songs that we we thought we knew and actually you know there's there's the communication that is there between them all. You can hear them all in the same room trying stuff out. Um, let me just look, we're talking about Sergeant Peppers. Let me just think about, you know, a day in the life, right? So I always thought that your dad had taken two songs and jammed them together after sort of almost post-recording. But he didn't because in the, in take one of, of Day in the Life on your box set, that, that's all jammed, that's all there, isn't it? All right, John does his bit and then it goes into an instrumental version of Paul's. Hey, this is this is such this is wonderful that we're yeah, seeing this process. It's funny that, isn't it? It's you know because oh, Jeff Emmerich wrote a book and he was the engineer and a brilliant engineer and he talked about how he spliced the tape to put to put that. In, and, That's and what I, I mean. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I'm really going. No, no, they didn't. You know, he also writes that Blackbird was recorded in the garden. That's the sound of bird sound. You go, no, it was in Studio Two, and there's a BBC tape running. There's a whole, <laughs> you know, there's a there's a, there's sound a, effects. There's, yeah, uh, but the, I mean, actually, Day and Life's a really good case in point out of scale and creativity, because, and I'll, I'll, I'll probably get this wrong, but, you know, what do you expect? Why not? Jeff did, everyone else has. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. But, you know, I'd be like, yeah, what I sounds good today? I'll, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but it's it's a four track. You know, Day and Life's, Day and Life is, is a cathedral of sound to me. It's one yeah. of the most ambitious records ever yeah. made. Yeah. But it's it's a four track. You have 
Um, John plays guitar. Paul plays piano. Um, I think uh, Rick George is playing maracas and uh, Ringo's playing bongos or congas. And that's on one track. And John's voice is another track singing live. And then after that, they put the bass and drums on together on one track. That's just that whole... Ringo's bizarre drums, because they are completely bizarre, and Paul's bass line are recorded together on one track, yeah. playing along. Yeah. No, no click track, nothing. That's it. Wow. That's the way it was done. And then the orchestra was, was recorded, and it's on one track. And it's like, you think, how many tracks do we use today with making records? And that's All a day them. in life. So, yeah, yeah so, so mixing it is actually really hard. And that's a good thing about uh, one of the questions. That was the one that I kept on going back to when I remixed Sgt. Pepper's. Because the mono, if you just the mono of Dan Life, it is so unbelievable. Mono can be hugely immersive, like Dark Side of the Moon or whatever. Can be you fall into these records, and what it is, it's the the limiting of those drums when they come in, it means the whole thing just slams. And if you put those in one speaker, you don't get the same effect. You don't ah, get the same. It's it's you have to you know you know you can do a bunch of sidechain stuff to the other the other speaker, but it's not the same thing. It's not that that intensity you get. And you, you mentioned that, that technology, they used technology came along. And I think, um, I, I, think, I think it was Bob Geldof on your podcast said that, you know, he, technology you know, reflects pop music and vice versa. I think the Beatles pushed technology. I think it's almost they invented something and they waited for the technology to happen. Well, it's something I wanted to mention as well, because something always fascinates me is how, how sort of audio, in terms of what, if you think about what people were listening to Beatles records on. Very few people had a stereo. Very few people, yeah. you know, it was radiogram type things or little dance sets or, you know, always fascinated by that. And, and you know, no one had cassettes yet. Did well, I don't think, think so. I you don't... go through all that trouble and, that, <laughs> and it's just coming out of some... Yeah, but I think fundamentally it's about the song every time, isn't it, with them? You're, you're, you know, it's never been about, oh, let's get a load of sounds and then try and write a song on top. The yeah. song was at the heart of everything. And then then everything else was serving that. Yeah, and I, I, you know, also I think they got bored as years, as, as did my dad. It wasn't a question of, okay, let's go down the same path. You know, it's, it was, here's an interesting sound. They were constantly pushing. And, and I think um, Paul was saying, you know, my dad would explain frequencies to them and, you know, how they were, you know, the, the reason why there's a dog, there's a 15 kilohertz tone at the end of Sgt. Pepper is because my dad was talking about frequencies that humans could found hard to hear, but dogs could hear. And they went, oh, that's, let's put that on a record then. You know, as if, <laughs> you know, there was a consistent kind of what else is in the box type of thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, and, and John was the same. John would be, you know, he would say, you know, I want it to sound orange or something like that. But he would also say, I mean, he you know, said a Ringo, you know, play it like that. You know, he'd listen to a record and go, it should be sound like this. And Ringo would go, that's two drummers. And John, John would go, well, don't let, that, don't let that bother you then. You know, that's not, why, why should that be an issue? Because there was no, there was no, we can't do this. Of oh, talking of which, because there's one thing that, that threw a, an old myth of, of mine. There's the story of when Pink Floyd were recording Echoes and Rick had the idea for the ping at the beginning and they wanted to put the piano through the Leslie. And apparently there was this thing that you couldn't put a piano through. Leslie, Leslie, I think, was a thing that was attached to a Hammond. And so because it was Pink Floyd, they spent three days with boffins taking the Leslie apart until they could plug anything into a, a Leslie. And so apparently the thing is, the reason you can play anything through a Leslie now is because of Pink Floyd. But then when I listened to the re reissue of the White Album, there's clearly vocals and stuff going through a Leslie. Yeah, but what, what Tomorrow Never Knows has John's voice through a Leslie. And yeah, that's 60, so, whenever it is, 65? 60, 60, yeah, 66. 66. 66, yeah. So, yeah, they were doing... Oh, they loved a Leslie. I mean, you know, 
What's Who not love to Leslie? Love? Yeah, he loves a Leslie. Uh, yeah, they were. Yeah, no, everything was. You know, there's loads of Leslie guitars. It's a speaker cabinet with spinning speakers. But it's, just yeah, but it's attached. Yeah, yeah. Some, which was. Uh, yeah, Gary's like yeah. the sign language guy. No, no, but you know yeah. what I mean. But, but, <laughs> I but translating I just, for. Just, just well before we move on directly to the White Album, I wouldn't mind having a little chat about that too. Yeah. But it's, it's really, I just think what kind of an extraordinary piece of work would Sergeant Pepper have been if Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane were also on that record. <laughs> because that's the time that they were written, wasn't it? And and I, I want to just say one more thing about that before we, you, you answer, is that I think that's the moment where John, and this is going to, people maybe won't like me saying this, John caught right up with Paul as a songwriter. That's absolute equanimity then. and Because I, I do think he learned a lot from Paul in chord sequences that Paul was probably more mature in in the early days. But that is absolute oh, double A oh, side. Oh, Gary Kemp, you're going to get letters. Yeah. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have no idea what you're dealing with here. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, yeah. I'm cancelling my subscription. As the lights go down in his house. Because <laughs> the guy runs electricity board. Look, I love John, and Paul wouldn't have been where he is if it wasn't for them. I, I mean, oh, I no, don't say, say stop, stop, stop. You're going to be stop, in, uh, stop get worse. Digging. No, I think, no, I, no, I, I think, listen, I... My own grave. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, you know, for instance, I think, you know, you have to... With 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 those, I'll I'll, I'll I'll avoid getting into your your other comment. But with those two songs, um, you know, we we thought we thought about that actually when we when we did Sergeant Pepper's, like we had a perfect opportunity to be able to put those tracks on, onto onto uh, onto the album. And I drove down to Rye and I played Paul the mixes, and we talked about it. I said, you know, and he goes, oh, we could put it, we could put you know, one at the end of side A and the other one at the beginning of side B, and then and whatever with whatever we looked at, we go, well, you can't change the running order of Sergeant Peppers you can't do that you can't where would you put it and my dad always said that it was one of his biggest mistakes because he released them you know famously as a double a side which means they was the the Sergeant Pepper and Penny Lane was sorry Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane was the first time the Beatles didn't have a number one with those two with those two songs unbelievable Probably yeah. their best two songs. <laughs> well, it's because it's because what the charts does, they split them down as two. They'd have to sell double. They split them as two A sides uh, on one record. Ah, uh, so you got yeah, their so sales halved. Yeah, it's got the sales halved. EMI yeah, must have been um, livid. Oh, yeah. But in the end, you didn't go for that. In the end, in the end, it in artistically didn't balance, did it? Artistically, it didn't work. We couldn't get it to work. And and what's beautiful about mm. an album, you know, and and it's that. You know, it's that lost that lost art form, is that it it has a beginning and ending. You know, it ends with day and life. So you can't really put anything after day and life. No. I did a sort of Dolby Atmos mix, which is like a very immersive. I did it in a in a movie theatre. Actually, we actually did a little bit of a tour with listeners to Sergeant Pepper in movie theatres and in, you know, with seventy speakers around you. Oh wow! And I sat with I sat with Paul in the in the Dolby Atmos room here, at Abbey Road, and. Uh, and and to get Paul to actually listen to anything because he just wants to go and do something else, which is yeah, why he's a great artist. <laughs> he actually did listen to it. He came and came with Mary, and they listened to it. And he was like, "How do we get these sounds? You know, this is amazing." God, well, he goes, "We were a really good band," and it was just really, it was just wow. lovely to hear someone just go, "This is great." You yeah. know, so you know, it was it was pure pre- appreciation, and not only appreciation, obviously that <laughs> of. A bit of appreciation of his mates as well, and my dad, and the whole process. Well, one of the things that's that is, is that you've been doing is myth busting as well, because you know we're we're sort of fed this sort of um, 
this rather biased history that the band hated each other at one point. You know, they come back from Rishi Kesh and, you know, they've got the Apple label going and and the White Album is them splitting up, you know, which I think John said. And actually, actually, fact, when you listen to the demos, the Isha demos and the stuff that's on, on your outtakes, it seems to me like a bunch of guys still enjoying them being together. Yeah, yeah even, you know, I'm working, I'm doing a, um, working on Let It Be with Peter Jackson. Right? Oh, yes, because that's another one. Yeah, because yeah. oh, yeah. all the footage from that, exactly. Yeah. Which and, is... and, and, you know, you can get accused of Disney-fying things. I mean, some of the worst arguments that cite in the Beatles, are, you know, I was in a band, we had way worse arguments like that on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, yeah. you know they, 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 they genuinely had a good time together. I think they generally found each other inspiring. I think what happened with the Beatles is that they split up and they needed to split up. They were definitely done. Definitely done. You can see it and let it be. You know, since Brian died, things changed. Um, he was a big influence. Brian Epstein, their manager, died. Mm. There was a big influence. He was a big influence, and that, and that went away from them. I think they became a bit rudderless, but they split up, and it was a bit like a divorce. John and George especially just focused on all the worst aspects of that marriage and talked about it and forgot about the great holidays they had. And the great holidays they had as the Beatles were generally in the studios, were genuinely, you know, mm -hmm. their collaboration. And and it's not as though, it's not, it's not as though when I go through the tapes and I try and, I try and find stuff that, that fans would find interesting or tells a story in a way, I don't really edit anything. I look for I look for the arguments because they're really fascinating, but there's not that many going on. The, the, I wouldn't take I wouldn't take anything Ringo, off. Ringo Ringo walked out though, didn't he, on the White Album? One yeah, but I, I desperately tried to look for that on tape. There's just the footsteps. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is Keith Moon on it? Is Keith Moon on it? No, no, no. Right. Paul, no. Paul plays drums quite a bit on right. it. Um, and, and and Paul isn't dead, guy. Of course, he is. He is. Because <laughs> uh, uh, something you must you must get really bored of hearing this. Jars, though, is just the fact that it always comes back to that this whole thing happened in just over seven years from yeah, start to finish. That's the, that's you know, the extraordinary thing. I just can't get thing. my head around that. Yeah, it's it's kind of scary in a way, and you can see why they were burnt out. I mean, if anyone's you know if anyone's interested, which I did once, I think I did when I was working on the uh, the Ron Howard film, is that we um, I looked at their their diaries on the internet, their diary for nineteen sixty four or sixty five. And you look at their touring schedule, because you've heard about the Beatles being a live band, but they yeah. were the biggest live band in the world. They worked, they were touring, they were playing live almost every single day, and they made two albums. Yeah. And you think, when did they make any albums? And Paul would say, you know, we'd have two weeks off and we'd go and make Revolver. You know, that was, you know, it was just, you know, it, it was just weird. It's just, you can't, you can't really you understand. try and tell that to young people today. And they won't listen. They won't listen. <laughs> what's, what's, what's extraordinary, obviously, because we we see the Beatles in a in the wrong order, don't we? Because they made they went then go away and make Let It Be without your dad, and then they they make Abbey Road, and Abbey Road comes out before Let It Be. So really, Abbey Road is the last thing they make in a studio. I think the last thing they recorded, and I probably get letters, was, was, was you know, <laughs> The End, you know, Golden Slumber's The End, which is incredibly poignant. I think that's the Amazing last thing lyric recorded. as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, the, the Let It Be period, <laughs> it's actually quite funny, because, you know, I'm, I'm working on it, I've been working on it recently, um, and, and I have mapped out every single day because they filmed every single day. It's a, Let It Be, for instance, was only 25 days or 26 days. That's what it was, and each day was recorded. It's 52 hours of film. And I was born October the 9th, 1969. I was going to say, birthday. you're a baby now, yeah. 
I, I, no, I'm not a baby yet, no, but I was, con- All right. I was conceived at some point during the filming. I'm looking for my dad and see if he's got a smile on his face. On one of those days, I'm thinking, <laughs> but, I, you know, that's, but, this is a bizarre. But one tell me, days, was, was your dad actually around my, for, the, for Let It Be? Or did yeah, they... he was. He was there. He was there. He came in and out. Glyn Johns, the, the brilliant Glyn Johns, was heavily involved. He was, he was the engineer. Uh, my dad at that stage was kind of like, you know, I think he was tired of dealing with the madness of things like there was a guy called Magic Alex you know oh, yeah, Magic yeah, Alex? yeah 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 I'm the, yeah so, <laughs> so magic so so for for, for the listeners magic he did it for so long it's just so yeah he, it, magic alex so there should be a film made made of him because he was if your listeners he was he was a guy that came to the beatles and he was a entrepreneur and a technologist that just completely was full of complete and utter crap, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, blagger, and he, he total blagger. He, he built the Beatles studios and was convinced the Beatles they could he could stop sound from travelling through walls without any glass or anything. <laughs> he also made boxes with lights on which had nothing in. The brilliant thing about Magic Alex, just as an aside, he went off and became in the early seventies. He became did armoured plating for cars, right. and and some African guy. Tested his cars and blew up half of his staff because, of course, the cars blew up. You know, it wasn't made of armor <laughs> plating at all. And, oh. You know, but but the, but they yeah they went off and and they you know and they were bored of I think they were bored of my dad's discipline. They'd he'd lost the classroom. They were bored of his discipline. They were like you know, this is we, we, you know we don't we, we just want to go back to being a band. We don't want to you know anything that was the Beatles had become the Beatles' this monster. And they, and they did this all the time. That's why they stopped touring. They didn't want to be the Fab Four. They, and then they wanted to become a studio band. Then they didn't want to become a studio band. They sort of wanted my dad to go away. Let's be a band again. And it didn't really Phil work. Because Spe- Phil Spector gets the credit, doesn't he? On the well, records. what happened with what happened Let It Be is that they finished everything. Um, and Glyn Johns made, a, made, made, made an album, um, which they never released, which we're thinking we, 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 we might release with Let It Be. Um, and then... John and George, who were who were both working with Phil Spector at the time, I think, or think of working with Phil Spector. John had worked with Phil Spector because they did instant, instant Karma quite early on. Took the tapes to Phil Spector and got Phil Spector to finish off. And what annoyed my dad is they did all the things they didn't want dad to, like add strings, choir, or overdubs, because Let It Be was no mm-hmm. overdubs. So Phil Spector overdubbed everything. Right. And then they released it. And they asked my dad, what do you want the credit to me? And he goes, why don't you say... Produced by George Martin and overproduced by Phil Spector. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he didn't so, get the credit, did he, your dad? In the end, I don't think. Well, he did. did. To be fair, he didn't really. He didn't really necessarily deserve it that much. But he was involved in the in the right. in the in the in the recording of. It. And then they they, they 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 did let it be naked, which was more of my dad's involvement. But also I preferred more of, more of Glenn Johns. I preferred let it be naked. I yeah, yeah, was, yeah absolutely. It was much it was much more of what it was meant to be because it was funny to go to. We just want to be a live band recording. But what are you doing? I take it you're doing you're going back to the original tapes and doing a remix again, like you've done with the last yeah. three albums. And and are you doing it with Phil strings or without? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, because. That's what it is. And I've worked. I've been down the. I've been down the pathway of Phil before because I did. Um, I did a Scorsese film on George Harrison called Living the Material oh, yeah, World. Yeah. Oh, and so, great film. So I, I mixed um, all things must. As if it's a funny, quite a funny story that um, Olivia Harrison phoned me up and said, "You know, Marty, I've, I've been working on the film for a bit and like going through archive stuff and finding bits and pieces." And uh, and Olivia said, "You know, Marty doesn't uh, doesn't really like your revisionist approach to music." And I went, oh, what does that mean? She goes, I don't really know. 
I said, does it mean I'm fired? Does it mean I'm fired? And she goes, well, yeah. I went, all right then. So I went off and did something else. And about a month later, she phoned me up and goes, we did a playback. Marsha did a playback in New York and he, 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 the sound is terrible. And I said, well, I'm not. You fired me. And they went, well, you need to meet Marty. So I met up with Marty in, um, in, in a studios in London. And I had the, the sort of 5-1 mix of All Things Must Pass and the original. I said, here, Marty, there's A and B buttons. You can tell me which one you like. And he went, this one, this is the one I like. This is the one I remember. I went, well, this is the mix we've done for the film. And he goes, no, it isn't. I said, it is. Just music's never quite how you remember it to be. Yeah, yeah. And going back to what you're saying, Guy, with speakers and technology, you take something that's, that sounds enormous on a small speaker and you make it sound on a big speaker. Quite often it still sounds very small. It sounds small. And right. the Phil Spector stuff's, you know, he's genius, but it's quite condensed. It's made for so, a dancer. So we'd let it be. It's made for AM radio, isn't it? Yeah, so we'd let it be. And you fill in all the blanks. Um, and so my job is to kind of fill in all the blanks as much as I can that are now exposed. But let, let me just talk about that uh, All Things Must Pass album, because... Because I remember seeing in that film that George says when he went in and he did Wawa, they were recording and it sounded one way. And then when he walked into the control room, there was so much reverb on it that it just, which is the version we know, mm -hmm. he, he wasn't sure that it was the right way of doing it. And so when you did the remix, you were having to find those, you were hearing the dry version and adding your own reverb. Yeah. In a, yeah, so much, so much, so you could go, you could press press stop and come back three days later, and it would still be playing. I'd love uh, to hear, I'd love to hear that original yeah. version though. The, but the, but that's the, the the beauty of these a lot of these records, and it's like a beauty of bands in a way, is that you isolate stuff, and it's never what you think it's going to sound like. You know, it's it's always a bit grittier and dirtier, and you know, and and not as beautiful. And you put it together, and it has this beauty to it. You know, like 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 bands do in a way. And that's the thing. That's the that's the balance I have to achieve in. In when I'm working on some of this material, is that I mean I've heard stuff that people have done that I haven't been happy with. There's lots, lots of brilliant people out there. Well, you start hearing tuning discrepancies because things are separate. Do you know what I mean? You don't really want that. You want to, the record to be as beautiful as you remember it. You want it to be, mm -hmm. you know, if if I can if I can get you to walk into a studio's and listen to something I've done and go, well, this sounds exactly the same, and then I play the original and go, oh, okay, yeah. that's what I want. You know. You're not tempted to straighten up drums and, uh, you know, move timings of things that are out of time. Oh, I just, I replace everything. I mean, I play it on myself. No, I don't. One of the few chats I've had with Paul, uh, for some reason, we got on to mistakes. About, and I, I asked him, I said, have you ever kind of got away with anything on a record? And, and he said, he did that incredibly sort of charming thing. He, he said, um... He said, well, there's a Beatles song called I Saw Her Standing There. Yeah, yeah, I'm, f f I'm familiar with it. And, um, and he said, apparently, he said, well, we got to the end of it. And uh, I thought, oh, shit, we're going to have to do that again. And everyone went, right, that's great, that's it. It was like, oh, really? So apparently, Paul McCartney <laughs> thinks I Saw Her Standing There wasn't a great well, there's, take. There's things you hear <laughs> and you go, and it's only because you listen. I mean, even on Let It Be, there's a, there's a, there's a piano note. And I thought, oh. But you think, you know... Just let's face it; it's not it's not as though it hasn't been a successful song, and it's human. And I think that you know we've we you know and, and listen. I think the whole area of, of you know of the '90s and from hip hop to EDM, there's just been the most unbelievable explosion of creativity. And but we seem to have lost some human element in recording bands and, and performances. Mm -hmm. And I think why these records endure for so long is because they are human. Because they're not perfect, and they are. Mm -hmm. You hear you you you. I think our brains, our subconscious, react differently every time yeah. because of that. 
you know, one verse isn't the same as another verse. It's but not they never the f- sound low res at the Beatles. They never, they never sound in that that sort of. Yeah. But the way sixties records do. But I'm interested. Yeah. Something like yeah. li- listening on on your Abbey Road outtakes. You've got um, you never give me your money. Take thirty nine, right? That's on that or something like that. Then maybe thirty eight, and it's still that's the last take you've got before the actual finished version, which seems like miles away from that take thirty eight. He really hasn't nailed it, even at that stage. The sound sonically is not quite there, and then suddenly, what what goes on? I mean, it's 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 really hard to tell. I think also you're hearing it raw with no overdubs as well. Right, right. On that mm-hmm. take, and so you're pretty fine. It's very similar. It sounds quite similar. It just hasn't been mixed, and it hasn't been. There's not there's not the band around it, and that's what the Beatles did. Is they they never added stuff to make it worse, or added stuff for the sake of it. There's, a, there's a, all the bands I can think of. The Beatles were the most economical in their approach. To adding music, you know, my dad always said, "Why would you double track a guitar? You know, you only make it half as sound, sound, sound half as what it's important. There has to be a really good reason to do it." Like George's guitar parts, there's like there's not one excess, there's not an ounce of fat, oh. there's not one note that doesn't yeah. absolutely no. need to be there. Beautiful. And I was, and I was, I was listening to, to to Trevor, the great Trevor Hall on your podcast. He was saying, you know, that, and I, I'm with him. Like, why does why do keyboards have to be in stereo all the time? Yeah. You know that thing. Yeah, but his point is, why side? do they have to be in stereo when you can put ten on? Yeah, why do they have to be, <laughs> why, why do they have to be in stereo? And why does it take so short to record them? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but there's, you know, I, and I think that there was a, there was a, there's a clicking that happened. What's interesting about the Beatles, though, is that they, I mean, like I remember a paperback writer, for instance, is was done in one and a half takes. There's only one and a half takes of paperback writer on tape. <laughs> You know, they, and you and you and you look at more of the now going back to the earlier albums. You look at more of the outtakes, and there's less and less outtakes the earlier you go. Now, whether that's because they rehearse a lot and then they press record, yeah, probably yeah, is they, the reason why. But, yeah, or because they because they because they didn't want they want the the engineers at probably wanted to save tape. Well, this is the perfect time for me to ask because you, obviously you're doing Let It Be and you're at the end completely now. Are you going to go back and and start doing versions of all the early albums? I don't know. There has to be a really good technological and sound reason to do it. It's a bit like to answer the question, really. But there's there's been a demand, you know, like a lot of things, like most things I've been involved in, like sort of wait to be firebombed, having touched the sacred, you know, the sacred, you know, statues that have that have been presented to people. Um, there's actually a big demand for things like rubber sole and revolver. Um, yeah. Oh, gotcha. To, to, for me to for me to mix. There's also an interesting that's happening, and which I'm quite into with this whole immersive audio stuff. You know. You, I did. Um, I did a. I did an, a Dolby Atmos version of Abbey Road, and we did a playback in Studio Two with a full um, surround rig. Not so it flies around the place, but think about that technology. And I'm, you know, I'm a bit like an old man. I'm into, you know, ways of getting people in the room. As you can put someone in a room with someone, ah. I can have Paul's or John's voice, and I can have the walls reflecting his voice, and it sounds like he's with you. It's really, it's. You know, it's mind blowing in lots of ways. Um, this is so Cecil B. De, this is Cecil B. DeMille meets the Beatles, isn't it? Yeah. So it's really, I, 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 there's, there's, you know, the closer we can get to things, the the more they touch our hearts, and that's the that's thing. So with the earlier stuff, I've got to, I've got to look at it and find out. It's a bit like a bit like Sergeant Pepper. I've got to look at it and honestly have a good look at myself and see whether it's worth doing more than anything else. I, I, I'm against the idea of. 
um, you always find something. I did um, I did a Rolling Stones album called Goat's Head Soup. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just before just before lockdown, which yep. is like they wanted a Dolby Atmos version of Goat's Head Soup, um, and a, and, me, and then they wanted me to remake, do a, redo a stereo once I was doing that. And it's like an album recorded in Jamaica. You know, and you put up the drum track, and there's no drums on it. You're thinking, <laughs> right? Okay, yeah, yeah. Like, 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 I'm meant to be Mister Mister High Fidelity. I'm going. Okay, fair enough. There, here you go. Lies down for full house. <laughs> um, and and that's the thing is, you need to you need to find for me, and it sounds corny, but I need to find um, like every record. And this is what's great about albums. Every record has its own. Uh, character and vibe and you know and I have to find that like you know Abbey Road to me is like a hi-fi album of the Beatles and 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 um, Sergeant Pepper's is a color palette and and the white album is the sort of visceral punch in the face it's a basically a it's a basically mm -hmm. a school playground fight that consistently happens you know yeah. it's that kind of thing and you t and and so with the earlier albums I need to be able to break it down and find out what yeah, but is. I think Revolver and Rubber Soul, where they were breaking uh, incredible new ground, even with yeah. those albums, and there's some of the songs on there. You know, what are they were doing? Speeding up some of the songs to get their vocals up higher, and but they sound great now. I mean, I like I've got a, I've got a really good studios at home, and um, I put on Taxman, and I was like, you know, this sounds great. I know all the drums and everything on one side, and the and the, and it's you know, but it sounds really good. So do I want to start? You know, thinking about demix technology and all that sort of stuff. I don't know. I mean, I'll 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 do stuff, but there's there's no point doing stuff for the sake of it. That's my point. Charles, you know what you've done is and what you're doing is is incredible. You know, you're the you're the keeper of the flame at the moment. Yeah, I know. I mean, <laughs> uh, and, and talking to you, very clearly a worthy keeper of the flame. This has been oh, this is going to be so reassuring for everyone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, feels, it must and it must feel great for you that you you're, you know your dad was was up there on the top of the mountain helping to carve the stones, as it were, and 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 now and, yeah. it, and you're still there, you know, working for him. Yeah. Yeah, way. well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I'm I'm immensely proud of of him, and immensely proud, you know, to be accepted by them, you know, by Paul and Ringo, and 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 by Olivia and Yoko as well. And now, you know, there's Sean and Danny, and the and the and the, the new generation coming through, because it's it's done. It's funny. I suppose I'm the one person that won't go up to people and say, "Hey, I've just remixed Sergeant Pepper." Because I don't really want to tell them what I've done it, or don't want to be go off about it. I much rather go, you know, I've, I've I've made a Rocket Man film, or I've done this, or I'm, and so I think that it's it's humbling to be in a situation where you work in a studio, studios, and then everyone wants to go and listen to it. A bit like you, Gary, outside the door. And by the time next time you're outside the door, knock on the door and come in. <laughs> ignore yeah. ignore, the, ignore the smell. Believe me, believe me, as soon as lockdown <laughs> finishes, or if I can come, I'm expecting my invite. I want to come you in are. and have a listen to some of those early tapes. Giles, I think you've got your father's spirit inside of you. And, uh, and that's what gives you that humility that you're just talking about. I was um, so uh, surprised and honoured you asked me to do on your fantastic podcast. I've literally, uh, I've listened to, I think I've listened, I'm disappointed, I'm now, I've now listened to every one. I'm, not, I'm obviously, obviously not going to listen to this one. But well, we, <laughs> we, we're inviting you to one day remix us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <You can>, yeah. <laughs> and you can include all the arguments that Guy and I have backstage. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you oh, so much for lovely. doing this. It's lovely that you that you listen, Giles. That's that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's great. It's why we do this. Thank I'm you big, so I'm much. Big fans of both of yours. Thank you very much for having me on. Oh, guy, that was great. Uh, that was so thrilling to, to was, get that sort of detail about the Beatles. It was brilliant, and he was. Um, 
as as I did say, I think it's going to be very, very reassuring for our audience. It's that he's so clearly the right man to be doing all that stuff. You know, he's he's the person who should be looking after it. Yeah, and you know, I think he know he must be able to sit there in the studio and listen to hours and hours of the band talking, just talking amongst themselves. You know, as he said, you know, it was it's like they're in the other room. It's so present. I mean, that must be just the most moving experience, given well, that his to, dad. Yeah, as I was say, to be able to reconnect with your dad like that—that's a fantastic. What a—that's an incredible privilege. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we love being here, so keep liking us, leaving reviews, um, subscribing, whatever you have to do. But uh, tell your you. friends. Tell your friends. Yeah. And we'll see you next week. And so it's uh, good night from me. And good night from them. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.